0: So I want to start us off this morning by reading a few lines from the beginning of the movie, The Princess Bride. Uh, Have you seen The Princess Bride? Okay, if you haven't, you should see The Princess Bride. It's up there. It's up there. So it starts off like this. Princess Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. See, nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish, replied Wesley with his hair tossing out of his eyes. As you wish was all he ever said to her. Farm boy, fill these with water, please. As you wish, he replied. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying as you wish, What he meant was, I love you. What he meant was, I love you. I want us to hold on to that thought as we travel through our sermon this morning. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites. I want to read this passage for you. It goes like this. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." And so Paul summoned so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telayim, two hundred thousand men on foot, and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And so it seems that Saul does what the Lord asks him to do. It seems that he carries out the will of God. But it says in verse 9, But Saul... And the people spared Agag the king and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fat and calves and of the lambs to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Samuel responded, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And I'm sure we've heard this verse before. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What's the point? See, the will of God is something we are called to honor completely. And while there are many nice things we can do to celebrate the name of the Lord, going to church, reading our Bible, singing to him, what screams I love you, what screams I love you more than anything else is simply responding to his commands in the same way Wesley responded to Buttercup, as you wish, as you wish. Because when we say, as you wish, what we are really saying is, I love you. What we are saying is, I love you. And so, as we continue our study in the Lord's Prayer this morning, digging into the phrase, thy will be done, our challenge will be, first, to understand what we mean when we talk about the will of God, and two what our role is as people who pray for God's will and are called to do God's will. And so ultimately, our goal is to get near and near to sharing together in the life of Christ by loving God and neighbor. And the path toward fulfilling the great commandment is to trust and obey. We sang that this morning. And trust and obedience is in, is in the Christian life looks a lot like what is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the first thing we want to look at is we want to answer that question. It's the first point in our outline that is in the bulletin. What is the will of God? What is it? Right? We can say, thy will be done all day long. We can, we can honor the commands to do the will of God. But if we don't know what the will of God is, then we're going to have a difficult time doing it. If I go to my children and start reprimanding them for something they didn't do, but I never actually told them to go clean their room, then it's on me, Right? But see, God lays out what his will is in the scriptures, which is a lovely thing for us. So so I did a little digging throughout the New Testament, and I found that the terms will, desire, wish, that as a noun, it shows up in one form 63 times and in in another way, in another form, five other times. And then as a verb, it shows up 208 times and then two other forms, one five times and one 37 times. Now, in order to determine the meaning of a word, it requires that you survey its usage. This is what we call a word study. As, has anyone ever heard of this is in Bible study, word studies? Right? So, so in full transparency... I did not read every single use of the terms, nor did I look at its usage outside of the New Testament. If you're doing like a comprehensive word study, you're looking how it's used in Greek literature. You're looking how it's used in other Greek texts in in the Greek Old Testament. I really focused on the New Testament for our purposes today. What I did look at was every usage of the noun and a decent-sized sampling of the verbs. And, And what I came to the conclusion was is that the verb was pretty easy to figure out. Basically, every time the word showed up in the New Testament, it was referring to someone wanting or desiring something. In other words, the meaning of the verb form of will is to desire. Seems pretty straightforward. The noun was pretty similar, only this time... It was a lot easier to see its usage in relation to what God desires, as there were only three times the word was used to refer to the will of someone other than God, which I thought thought was really interesting. So the noun for the will of God is very much related in the New Testament to God's will. It actually outlines it pretty particularly. And so after surveying all of the uses of the term, what emerged were three categories when it comes to the will of God. The first one is that the will of God is the calling placed upon his people to live lives of faithfulness and obedience. See, the will of God is righteous living. It's righteous living, right? It's holiness. Pete talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What does it mean to do the will of God? It means to live a life of holiness. A specific example shows up in 1 Thessalonians, if I can get there for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says this in verse 1 and following, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. And then it says this, your sanctification, your holiness. And then he explains it a little bit. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. And then he continues a little bit. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you more, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the will of God is to walk righteously before God is to walk in holiness before God. And it's for a specific purpose, that the world around us might take a look in on this thing we call the church, and they'd be like, oh, there's something different about that crew. There's something different about those people. So the will of God is righteous living, for sure, that is the truth. But another category emerged. The will of God is also the cosmic plan of redemption. A plan that relates to the salvation and rescuing of a people and the consummation and full realization of the kingdom. Let me show you where this shows up a little bit. Again, I can't give us every single usage, but I can give us a a small sampling. So the will of God as the cosmic plan of salvation. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, it says this in verse 8. which he lavished lavished upon us. He's talking about the grace of God and all wisdom and insight. And it says this in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to talk about these two categories of God's will. the coming together of, of God and man, this, this, this vertical sort of salvation thing that happens, that we are reconciled back to God, and then it talks about the horizontal coming together, that, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come together, and ultimately that heaven and earth are coming together, ultimately, as the new heavens and new earth are formed, as we looked at in Revelation chapter 21. So the will of God is first... Our calling to live obedient, holy, and righteous lives before God. And that righteousness is outlined, as I said, in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the New Testament scriptures. But the second part of God's will is this cosmic plan of redemption whereby God is reconciling all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. And so this is the will of God. And the third category that showed up is that the will of God is for us to have confidence in that cosmic plan and to continue living faithfully even when it feels as though that cosmic plan is crumbling beneath our feet. And so we got three categories for the will of God. So when we're praying, thy will be done, we are praying... For this cosmic plan to finally be made realized. In other words, we're saying, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. We're also asking God for the strength to live out that will in holiness and righteousness. And we're asking for the strength and confidence to live out his holy will for our lives. Even when it feels like the world is crumbling around us. Even when it feels like the kingdom of God is failing and the kingdoms of this world are advancing. He says, follow me. He says, follow me. But the major point of all of this is these two kind of wills of God. We have the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. The secret will of God is we don't know when this cosmic plan is going to come to fruition. We have no idea. In fact, the Bible says if anyone claims to know when Jesus is going to return, they're a liar we have no idea. We also don't know who's going to come to faith, right? We have no idea. We pray for people. We pray earnestly for people that they would repent of their sins and come to faith, but we don't know. But the thing is is that while it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God desires or wills for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, we know that this is not the case. But this does not thwart the ultimate or secret purposes of God. In fact, what we are called to understand is that when it appears that God's will is slipping away from him, it is then that we must remain faithful. In the words of one theologian, Hermann Bavinck, the two wills, the secret and the revealed, are so far from being opposed to each other that the revealed will is precisely the way in which the secret will is brought to realization. So, It's God's revealed will. This, this, this will, this, this, this call for us to trust and obey, to be obedient to his calling, to be holy and righteous, to abstain from sexual immorality, to love our neighbor, to love God, to worship Jesus together as the community of faith, to care for the poor, to care for the marginalized, to care for the oppressed. All these things are God's revealed will. There's no conversation about whether or not we should care for the poor. It's the will of God that we do so. There's no conversation about whether or not we should concern ourselves with reconciliation between different people groups and ethnicities. It's the will of God for us to do so. There's no question there. And so our call is to walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. It's no question of whether or not we are to love our enemies and pray for those who curse us. And walking in obedience means we do just that even when the temperature starts to rise because that's the will of God. That's what he commands of us. And sometimes it feels as though those enemies are actually growing in number around us and we don't know what to do. But you know what God tells us to do? God tells us to love them. We talked about this last week. The kingdom of God moves toward the effects of sin with grace, kindness, and truth. We move toward the effects of sin. That's the will of God for us. And God is using that movement in us as individuals and as the corporate body of Christ to bring about his hidden will. Right, we talk about this all the time that we would live lives as the body of Christ here in Toms River so that people might catch a glimpse of what God is like. So that we can be the means by which God is bringing people to faith. That's our hope, right? That we would be holy as he is holy. See, the nation of Israel was called to this very holiness. They were called to be a blessing to the nations. They they were not that. They were not that. And so what happens is, as we talked about last week, is that the people of Israel sort of whittled down to just a few, and Jesus comes on the scene. The, the ultimate remnant, right, is Jesus, the true Israel. And now, now those of us who are in Christ have been given the same call, to show the world what God's like, by loving God and loving neighbor. It's so simple, right? It's so simple. But we complicate it. We complicate it. But God is calling us to simply love him and to love neighbor. In other words, nothing happens outside of God's sovereign rule and reign. And faithfulness means staying the course when all of our better judgment is telling us to jump ship. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Be done, and, and so moving on, let's talk about our older brother's example in Matthew chapter 26. See, the one who wrestled with this very truth, thy will be done, who embodied what was said by Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, he was lied about, he was imprisoned. He was left for dead, but through God's providential and sovereign hand, his secret will, he was raised to a place where he was able to save all of Israel from certain death. It says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, he said to his brothers, but God meant it for good. We've used this verse before, right? But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Jesus embodies this exact event as we look at Matthew 26. Turn with me, verses 30 through 46. I'm going to read, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. It says this, when they had sung hymns, they went to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Whew, that's tough, right? That's a tough thing to hear. Oh, cool, thanks, Jesus. Great, it's been great hanging with you. for as it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter's he's strong, right? I feel like I would say something like that. <laughs> um, I lost my socks. I was making jokes. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is the Lord speaking. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I'm scared to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther on, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice there's words popping up here that are very reminiscent of a prayer we just prayed together. Um, watch and pray the minute. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came up to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is At hand. So a couple of observations. Jesus tells them what is to happen, that they will all fall away because of me this night. He indicates by quoting from the prophet Zechariah that the father intends to strike him down. In other words, Jesus knows what's coming. He's very aware of what he is about to enter into. He then takes three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, the same three who were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, And then notice the language used to describe Jesus. He's sorrowful and troubled. He's sorrowful in his soul. And it says that he is, in our words, scared to death. He's scared to death. He's worried to death. And so he prays three times. First time he asks, if it be possible, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Lord, is there any other way, Father, is there any other way that, that your cosmic plan of redemption, the bringing together of heaven and earth, the reconciliation of sinners, is there any other way besides what's about to happen? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The second time, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will will. So so the cup needs to be, if there's no other way for this cup to be drunk and and taken care of, your will be done. And the third time he says the exact same words, your will be done. And so the point is that the one who is Lord of all, the one who it says in John chapter 1 was present at creation, and that all things were created through him and by him. That one, the second person of the Trinity, the one who taught us this prayer, is he knows what he must do, and he is deeply grieved by it. Deeply grieved by it. See, his desire and will, Jesus, his desire and will is to find another way. But he submits his will to the will of the Father. He wants there to be another way. Don't make any mistake about it. This isn't just like a show that he's putting on for the disciples. He is sorrowful. He is struggling. He is on his face, it says. That phrase, on his face in prayer, is the same phrase used throughout the Old and New Testament when when someone would, would come upon something that was so overwhelming to them. He throws himself down. Father, please... Now, a bad analogy, but maybe to give us an image of of how distraught he was, think of like your toddler just screaming for something different to happen. Now, we're not comparing Jesus to a toddler. I want to be clear about that. I don't want to mess with our Christology here. But the point is, is that he was so overwhelmed in himself. He wanted something other than what was before him. But he trusted the will of the Father. He trusted the will of the Father. Think back to what Joseph says to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God has meant for good in order to bring many, to save many people from death. Something like that. I'm probably getting it wrong. Think about that. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. These words that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane are the exact same words... We find in the Lord's Prayer, which is why we must remember, in the words of theologian and pastor Wesley Hill, the Lord's Prayer is a portrait of Jesus Christ. He embodies and enacts the prayer he taught his followers to pray. Jesus is the invisible background of every one of the prayers' petitions, every one of the prayers' petitions. All of them are arrows that point toward him, even though he isn't mentioned by name in any of them. See, Jesus walks or walked the very road he calls us to travel, the road of submission, the road of righteousness, the road of sacrifice, and ultimately, the road of cross-bearing death. See, he's not asking us to do something he hasn't already done. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 4, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Why? Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, God is not calling us to anything that he hasn't already experienced himself. He prayed thy will be done. Through sweat, tears, and blood, he prayed thy will be done. Many of us have been in those circumstances where we were begging, pleading with God for another way pleading with God for another way, unaware of what was happening behind the scenes. See, what's, what's fascinating to me is that Jesus is fully aware of what's about to transpire. He knows what his death and burial are going to bring about, and he's still wrestling through it. So, so it's, it's I get it, man. We've gone through stuff, right? We have all gone through stuff where we're like, God, why are you doing this? Why why should I remain faithful in the midst of what I'm going through right now? Why? Well, Jesus did. He calls us to do it also, and we are called to trust and obey. And the, 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 the will of God as we walk in faithfulness in the midst of those difficulties are the very means by which he is using to bring about his purposes, both cosmically and in our own lives. And, and maybe this sounds a little like, like self-centered, right? That like my life has some sort of cosmic impact. Well, well yeah, in a sense it is a little self-centered, right? But there's also truth to the fact that as we read through the scriptures, what are the things that accomplish the biggest tasks? It's those little things, right? The little things are what produce the most amount of fruit. That little mustard seed is what grows into a giant tree that houses um, a home for birds and, and what have you. It's the little things that God uses. So yes, God is using us for cosmic purposes. Oh, absolutely. Individually and corporately as a church. Do we we believe that? That the will of God is actually being, being, being mediated through his people. That he is bringing about the salvation of souls through his church. Everyone in this room who calls Jesus Lord, they got saved because someone told them something, right? Maybe it was a small conversation. Maybe it was observing a life lived by someone you looked up to. Whatever the case may be, it was something small that led to the biggest transformation in your life. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And so when Jesus prayed, thy will be done, he was submitting himself to the cup of God's judgment and wrath for the purpose of bringing an end to the reign of sin and death in the world. See, it was a kingdom-sized prayer for a kingdom-sized moment, a moment that would change everything. Because on the very next day, Jesus was crucified. On the very next day, the shepherd was struck down and the sheep were scattered. Peter made all the promises in the world. But as we know how the story goes, he denied him three times. Three shows up a lot in the scriptures. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah says. But God's will, just as it was with Joseph, had a bigger picture in view. A picture that is not always clear to us in the moment. And that bigger picture was the reconciliation of all things, the salvation of sinners, and the coming of the kingdom. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. That's what worked looking at here, Redeemer. That's what we're dealing with as we think through this prayer, thy will be done. What does it mean to pray thy will be done? It means that we are begging God for the coming of the kingdom. We are begging God for the salvation of sinners. And we are begging him for the strength to remain faithful, even when it seems like there is no point in faithfulness. Even when it seems like there's no point in faithfulness. And this is why he instructs us to pray in the same way Jesus prayed. Thy will be done. So as, as, a, as by way of reminder, a couple of, a couple of things, right? The will of God. Number one, it's righteous and faithful living. Righteous and faithful living. Number two, it's God's cosmic plan of redemption and the consummation of the kingdom. And number three, it's that we would have confidence in his will. And would continue living lives of righteousness and faithfulness even when it goes against our better judgment and all conventional wisdom. I want to read from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. It says this in verse 13 and following. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for his good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do with gentleness and respect, having good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Right, so so when we think about this this call to faithfulness. It's, it's one, right? It's, it's for us. It's for us that we would remain faithful with, before God, right? That we would enjoy that fellowship with God. See, what's interesting is that as you survey the usage of will, it seems that those, those calls to obedience are always tied to our assurance in the faith, right? It's very difficult for us to have assurance in our walk with Jesus if we're doing whatever we please. It's very difficult to have assurance in the faith, if we are just sinning willfully and not caring, very difficult to have assurance. See, God says, says do these things so that you might know. But then he also says, do these things so that they might know, that the world around us might know. Again, we talk about this weekly, that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. In verse um, chapter 4 of even in the midst of suffering God calls us to obedience even when it feels like the world is spinning out of control and let's be honest it feels like the world is spinning out of control it has been now for like two years and yeah sure it gets better right numbers seem to be going down and all that but who knows what next week may hold Right? Because that's how we've been living, right? We're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. I mean, does anyone relate to this a little bit? It's like, it's like you put on the news, you get a news alert on your phone, you're like, oh, no, what now? Oh, but you know what's so good about God? He remains the same. He don't change. You don't change. See, see the, the news goes back and forth and back and forth. And we've talked about just the absurdity of the news where you watch Fox, they say one thing. You watch CNN, they say one thing. And you're kind of like, is there a truth somewhere in the middle? Who knows? I don't know. But you know what is true? What he writes down in his book is true. And he is true. And he remains constant. And so he calls us to be faithful. And our faithfulness rests on the fact that Jesus is coming back. That's the promise. And that he is seated on the throne. And that everything we experience, everything we experience is for the good of his kingdom. He's using it. He's using it. Do we trust that? Do we believe that? And when we don't believe that, we need someone to push us so that we do believe that, to encourage us along the way because we need one another. That's why we call this a family here, right? We call it a family because the Bible calls it a family, but we live it out as family because we actually do need one another. I mean, there have been plenty of times in elder meetings where I'm sitting there like, I don't know what we're doing, guys. I don't know what we're going to do. And my brothers lift me up. They're like, no, 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 we're doing it. We're doing it. God is still king. It's okay. We're doing it. And, and, I, and, I, and all of a sudden, I got a little, I got a little bit of confidence for the, for, the, for the road ahead. So we need one another to remind us of these truths. Right? That's why we come here on Sunday, so we can be with one another. We can, we can participate in the supper, and we can be reminded of the gospel, that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and he's coming back, and that those of us who put our trust and confidence in him will have life. We need that reminder, and we need that reminder of the whole gospel, not just the part where, like, I'm saved, right? Yeah, we need to be reminded of that. We also need to be reminded that he's on the throne and he's coming back. That's part of the good news. It's a big part of the good news. We need those reminders. And so the point is is that we participate in thy kingdom come, When we submit ourselves to the will of God, trusting that even the worst of what we go through in this life, even the worst things that we go through in this life are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, used to accomplish his purposes in our lives, our sanctification and growth, and his purposes in creation to bring about the consummation of the kingdom of God. And as I said at the beginning, praying thy will be done responding to the commands of God with a simple as-you-wish is how we say, I love you. It's how we say, I love you. It's how we say, you are God and I am not. It is the best form of worship. In in Romans chapter 12, I, I wasn't planning on going here, but it just kind of popped into my head. Romans chapter 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And some people have translated this as your reasonable or logical worship. Like, it just makes sense. It just makes sense to present your bodies as living sacrifice to God. That's what worship is. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and Perfect. What's the will of God? That we would walk in obedience to him. Thy will be done. God's will calls us to a life of holiness and kingdom-shaped living. It's a life that moves toward the effects of sin with kindness, love, and truth. It is a life of grace and compassion, trusting that God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, even when it feels like we're in a tailspin and the kingdoms of this world are gaining ground. And so, as we close this morning, and as we approach the table this morning, this meal that was instituted just hours before Jesus uttered the words, Thy will be done, my prayer is that we would approach in confidence, with confidence confidence that the God who stepped into creation, who suffered, died, and was buried who was raised to new life on the third day, who is seated on the throne, ruling over all creation. My prayer is that as we spend time silent before God, that we would all, both individually and corporately as a church, relinquish our wills and desires to the will of God. That we would relinquish our wills and desires to the will of God. Individually, we all have things we're going through. All of us do. Every single person in this room has a story to tell, has gone through something, or is going through something, or who will go through something. And so so we see Paul, he had a thorn in his flesh too, if you remember. And in similar to Jesus, he prayed three times that it would be removed. Guess what? It wasn't removed. It wasn't removed. We all have a thorn, and and instead of dwelling on that thorn, maybe it's time to start living our lives in spite of it, because it might be there forever. See, we cannot stop living because of it. We cannot allow it to consume us. We need to be freed up to love God and neighbor. And so there's this idea of getting our eyes off of ourselves and worshiping God and saying, thy will be done so that our eyes could be on the needs around us. Because salvation doesn't mean life is easy, but it does mean we can walk in confidence. Corporately, as a church, it was the will of God for Redeemer to go through what we went through over the last two years. We can't sit in that, though we got to move forward, trusting that God has a plan for this family, again, that we would be freed up to love God and neighbor. And then one thing I want to talk about before we close. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, God actually tells us a little bit more about his will. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings, Am I in the right spot? Yeah. I think I am. I'm just going to keep reading because I'll get there. Um, And Sarah Liars, who forbid marriage and require abstinence. um, I lost my spot. I'm just going to talk about it. I'm just going to talk about it because I know what it says. It's, It's God's desire. It's God's will that all should come to faith and know the truth. That's the will of God. He desires that all people, for kings, for those in high positions. He, 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 he asks that we pray for all these people. And he says he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the good news of Jesus is that he is king, that he conquered death and sin, and that in him we have forgiveness of sin and salvation. That's good news, and he desires for all of us to know that truth. And so the question I want you to wrestle with, if you haven't submitted yourself to the will of God, to the will of our King, then this morning pray, thy will be done. Thy will be done. If you don't know God, if you have not submitted yourself to the King, if you have not bent your will to His, then He's calling you to do so. He's calling you to submit yourself to him, have your sins forgiven so that you might walk in newness of life. It all comes back to that. It all comes back to the good news of King Jesus, seated on the throne, ruling over all of creation. My heart is that we would all be able to pray together that will be done. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how you love us, Lord God. We thank you that your ways are higher than ours, Lord God, and that we don't always understand them. Father, I pray that we would walk in confidence, though, knowing that you are king. And Father, for those who are in this room who do not know you, Lord God, I pray that even as we are sitting here right now, Lord God, that they would put their trust and confidence in you and you alone, and that they would walk in newness of life today, Lord God. Father, we beg that of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.